Acts 4 and verse 32. And we're going to look at a shining example and a scary warning. Acts 4, 32. And we're going to start at, uh, uh, as I say, verse 32, the end of chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, that could be a very blunt instrument about the gift days, couldn't it? Give everything you've got, you'll be blessed. Don't do it, and... um, Well, I hope your life insurance payments are up to date. But actually, it's a very challenging and encouraging passage, and I want to look at it this morning seriously. I actually believe there is a real element of God using it to challenge us and speak to us, and it isn't about money. In fact, not mostly about money at all. Let's just briefly pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the honesty in your word. I thank you for its reality. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word this morning. Holy Spirit, do business in our hearts and in our lives. Make us more what you want us to be. Let us be a pure and glorious church. Lord, we know we're going to have imperfections this side of heaven, but purify our hearts and let us be a people who are radiant for you as much as we can be. We ask you, Spirit of God, sweep in on us this morning. Challenge us, encourage us, And bless us, we pray. And help us to change where we need to change. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at the shining example of Barnabas and the scary warning of Ananias and Sapphira. And this isn't merely about money, nor about amounts of money, or how much you give. 
It's all about heart attitudes and heart issues. And I want us to be open to God as we look at it. We're going to look at, at a shining example in Barnabas. But as I will say in a few minutes, I don't think it's only about Barnabas at all. But let's first of all focus on that. And if you've got your Bibles open, we're really looking at the end of chapter 4, 32 down to 37, and particularly verses 36 and 37, which give us some details about this guy called Joseph, who was a Levite from Cyprus, who got the nickname Barnabas, son of encouragement, who sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas is singled out in Scripture here, probably not for the reason that we might more obviously think, well, he made an exceptionally generous gift. It possibly was exceptionally generous, but if you look in context, other people were doing the same sort of thing in the verses before. But it may have been an outstanding gift in some way, but the main reason he's singled out is probably because of who he was or later became when Luke wrote the book of Acts. Barnabas became a leader in the first phase of church life. And he actually was a very key pioneer in breaking into areas with the Gentiles. And he was the guy who brought Paul, the apostle, on board. He was the one who actually went and engaged with this oddball, ex-Pharisee, ex-church persecutor who had been saved and nobody quite knew what to do with him. And it was Barnabas who went and got Paul at the right time and brought Paul into the ministry. Barnabas has a major part to play in the next phase of church life, but then he fades out a bit, actually, after that. But he had his time when he was a key player. And so we know a little more about Barnabas, and it may be he's introduced at this point to show how he first appeared on the scene. But because we know a bit more about him, it's quite interesting. I hope you find these things interesting. First of all, Barnabas definitely did come from quite a wealthy family. His sister was a lady called Mary, who was the mother of a young man called Mark or John Mark. And in Mary's house, which must have been a very substantial house in Jerusalem, the early church met for prayer. You can read that for yourself in Acts 12, verse 12. They met in Mary's house, which was obviously a fairly large house. That's where they were praying when Peter was in prison. Now, that was Barnabas' sister. John Mark was his nephew. And in actual fact, Barnabas probably was a wealthy guy. And I don't think he necessarily gave all his wealth. He gave a substantial and uh, eye-catching sort of gift. But obviously he didn't do it to catch the eye, I hasten to add. But he was obviously a wealthy man. Now let's add to that the fact that he was a respectable religious man. In a sense, he was a Levite. Now that was quite high in Israel's uh, society, as you can imagine. It's the priesthood class. And uh, so Joseph was a Levite. Yet, I want you to notice straight away that he wholeheartedly, deeply and sincerely followed Jesus. He had a lot to lose. Remember, we were looking last week, just at Acts 4, at the whole tenor and tone of the way the religious establishment dealt with Peter and John. These guys in the Sanhedrin. Now, they were sort of sort of um, Barnabas' or jo- Joseph's sort of circle. Probably he wasn't part of that. But he he was a Levite. He had a lot to lose by following Jesus. But he laid it aside wholeheartedly and enthusiastically. His wealth and standing might well have meant it was very difficult to take the leadership of Peter and John. Humanly speaking, Peter and John were, what did we say last week? Unschooled, ordinary men. They were ex-fishermen. They were leading this movement. 
Joseph was a Levite and he was wealthy. His sister had this large Jerusalem house. But he freely follows their leadership. You will find him submissive and cooperative. And even this substantial gift he lays at the apostles' feet. That means he leaves it with them to distribute. He doesn't just do largesse moves as a rich man and give a little bit to this person and that person. Half, perhaps, in some ways, getting a little bit of um, a circle of people who, who look upon him as a generous benefactor. Benefactor. There's none of that thinking. Joseph just lays it at the apostles' feet. It's totally guileless gift. A sincere move of the Spirit in his heart. He freely and gladly gave. Now, son of encouragement tells you quite a bit about him. They called him that. That was his nickname. Actually, it doesn't come over properly quite in English, like quite often, because the word they used was paraclesis, paraclete. They called him son of paraclete. Now, those of you who know a bit of Bible know that's a word used to describe the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean he's son of the Holy Spirit. It is a word in its own right. It's a Greek word referring to someone who, and I don't think we've quite got it in English because we don't understand encouragement today. It refers to someone who is an advocate and a comforter which is why when you get the Holy Spirit described sometimes, he's sometimes described as an advocate and sometimes as a comforter because Paraclete had both. Encouraging was not patting on the head. It wasn't just there thereing or giving people a tea and sympathy. It was challenging and comforting in English terms. It had both elements. You advocated, you, you it strengthened them. You said, come on, we can do this. Come on, don't give in. Come on, persevere or whatever but you also comforted and cared for those who were in grief and trouble. It really has that double meaning. So what a guy he must have been, Joseph, that they called him son of encouragement. He got alongside people, he encouraged them, he challenged them, and you find him doing it later in the book of Acts with the Antioch, first phase of Antioch, and then with Paul. There's a sort of sturdiness, but a compassion and a love there. He was obviously a very sweet and great character. I tell you what, there are Barnabases about in this church. I could name half a dozen people. I thought when I was preparing this sermon, I thought I see them as a sort of Barnabas. Now, I think there are Barnabases as well, ladies, but I was thinking that I could embarrass some people this morning. I don't know if I will or not. I'm on the edge of doing it. I mean, it's personal really. I find Peter a Barnabas, Peter Smith here. I find John Canfield a Barnabas. Uh, someone like Gary Wood, someone like John Richbell. Um, uh, I could go on, actually. Um, Stuart Hanscom. There are people, a wide range of people, who are just encouraging. They, they, they challenge you, but they also often bring, bring some answers, bring some comfort. Now, I'm not, that's not an exclusive list. You can see I'm not looking at notes. But I'm just saying it's a wonderful thing to have Barnabas in the church, to have sons of encouragement. And please, let's encourage each other to be Barnabases. We need, we need them, male and female Barnabases. And it's a key role. It doesn't mean you don't do other things, it's, but it's a, it's a priceless thing. And obviously the apostles felt it as a sort of priceless thing. So this guy, let's give him a nickname. Let's give him a Christian name. Probably it's how they would see it. And, and, uh, and that was the one they gave him. Let's have a brief cameo look at Barnabas. Briefly, on the, on the screen it's going to go up. Acts 11. I hope it is anyway. Thank you. Acts 11, 22 to 24. Let's just read that. Here's a, one of the little cameos of Barnabas. This is about things happening at Antioch where some, uh, some uh, non-Jewish people are getting saved and, and others. And it's all sorts of interesting things going on. Verse 22. 
News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. What a testimony. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That'll do, won't it? Give me people like that. Good man, good woman, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That'll do very nicely. Now that is what he was. And that's why he gave like he did, which is the big point. It came out of who he was and his spirit. He was a man who embraced the gospel, costly at times. He was a man who loved Jesus and he loved Jesus' people. He loved the church. He just was a man who got into the community of faith and was an active part of it. And he was full of faith. He trusted God for his own needs. Yeah, he'd been a wealthy man, but he was giving it away, or some of it. And he also had a lot of challenges as well, because you know that things were not easy for the early church in Jerusalem. We've already seen that. He would have had his battles, but he trusted God. He didn't see that which was his own as something for him, but something he'd been entrusted with to serve God and to serve God's people. He was a living example that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Not merely in money, but in yourself and your giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that it is true, and that is Barnabas lived that. And we need to learn from him. Actually, he's an example of something much more widely going on then might be, I might be giving a false impression by picking Barnabas up. It wasn't an isolated act of generosity by one sort of outstanding man that is in really those verses there in chapter 4. We find the whole church is showing something of this spirit. And you can read it, we have read it, verses 32 to 35. The church itself is a shining example. It's one of those snapshots of early church life, just those verses there, We get several of them, which is quite fascinating. Now, hear this. This does not contain any laws or regulations. The New Testament doesn't work that way. What we are given is a model, is an example, and it's got principles that we can learn from. And what we learn from these verses here, 32 through to 37, can be applied in any time and in any culture in terms of example and model. It's not rules and it's not regulations. And I want to unpack that for a few minutes. And I want to unpack it briefly by just highlighting some phrases. That's how I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to spend long on each one. So let me highlight a few phrases from verse 32. All the believers. So actually it isn't just about Barnabas. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Here's something we learned. There was unity amongst this church. There was a solidarity. They were all united in what they were doing. Now, spiritual unity is a pretty important part of building church and building a local church. And this was, in effect, a local church still, one community here in Jerusalem. There were thousands of people attached to it now. Remember that. Maybe up to 9,000 recorded, is it? 8,000 recorded as saved, 3,000 and 5,000, I think, already. So we're talking about thousands of believers, but there was a oneness about them. 
They didn't all agree on everything. That comes out several times even soon to come. But I believe there was a genuine love between them. Unity doesn't mean we all agree about everything. But it does mean we honour each other, we love each other, we're for each other. We support each other. And actually, in a practical term, we share. They shared. They shared and gave. Now, they gave to one another, not merely money, although probably that was pretty important there. It's probably pretty necessary because as people got saved in this culture, at this time, they would have been probably kicked out of their families and would have had no means of support. It was quite critical, like it is in some, for example, Islamic countries today. So there was a lot of need around, but that, that is one aspect of sharing. Can I bring it right into our culture? We may still need to do that to share money, but I think they shared time, they shared effort, they shared emotional energy. I don't know what modern phrases to use. There's a sort of helping each other and a sharing which must go on in church life. We can't all know everybody. You can't do that beyond about, I don't know, 50 people probably, maybe 100. But we, as we, we need to be, as we grow, and these were thousands of people, having that quality of life throughout the community, that there's support and care and a sharing sometimes of material things, sometimes of just, I would say, emotional or time things. Next phrase, no one claimed, verse 32. It's very clear, and this we need to say large, because this passage and others like it have often been misused in history. It is very clear that the believers did not renounce all private ownership, nor were they required to do. That becomes clear again and again. But if you wanted one example, it's in chapter 5 and verse 4, when Peter is challenging Ananias, he says in verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In the early church, people owned stuff. They were allowed to own things, and actually, they were free to dispose of it how they liked. You could, in modern terms, give it away, or you could buy yourself a new car. You know, it's up to, they didn't buy cars, you know that. I said in modern terms, didn't I? No, I said in modern terms, that's okay. Just in case you think I'm bar- rather garbled. So, now, actually, you've got the point. This was not forced. It was not regulated. It was not a form of early communism. The key phrase is... No one claimed any of his possessions were his own. There was a breakdown of that very natural worldly tendency. We all have it, their culture and our culture. What's mine is mine. Nobody else gets their hands on it. I want more for me. More, more toys, more collecting. They're just, the Spirit of God changed it. And no one claimed that what he possessed was his own. He possessed it, but others can use it. And if, 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 if my, their need is critical... I'm prepared to give something to help them. There was a real spirit of availability to one another. It was a pretty radical attitude, probably to possessions. But the spirit of it is challenging to every culture in every age. This is not purely culture-bound, though there would have been precise problems they were hitting. I've indicated particular problems with the the massive um, uh, cost of converting to Christianity. But actually... It's more than that. It's about an attitude which we need to have in every age. That actually, we are entrusted with what we have. We're allowed to own it. We're allowed to do stuff with it and enjoy it. It belongs to us. And yet, we don't claim that, in a sense. We don't, we, we, there's a freedom about us as people of God together. So, quickly, they shared 
everything they had. Another phrase. Again, as I emphasize, this is not an early form of communism. It was not a membership requirement to give over everything to the church. It was voluntary. They shared voluntarily. And it even didn't involve all private property. Look at the next phrase. From time to time. There was a voluntary, sporadic element to this. A voluntary, sporadic element. They didn't do it all the time. It wasn't all the property. It wasn't regulated by the Peter and John, as I keep saying. And it's very important to understand this, because it's attainable, this spirit. It's what the Spirit of God does. It's not some idealistic, semi-communistic utopia of the early church, which sometimes this has been twisted into. It's not. It's the reality of spirit-filled lives. Now, I'm, you know, we need to go up a few gears. We need to be challenged. But there is something about it that doesn't mean that people didn't have stuff. That just from time to time, voluntarily, sporadically, when there was a new wave of converts and loads of them had kicked out of their home and disinherited, people began to be generous to each other and to help each other. Maybe have them in your own home when they've been kicked out of their own uh, parental home, for example. So the next phrase, anyone as he had need. The distribution was proportionate to need. It went with genuine need. It was spiritually and pastorally overseen. Now, that's quite interesting. The next phrase, put it at the apostles' feet, verse 35. That sounds quaint. What that really means is that the apostles distributed it, which actually gave them practical problems, which we'll find in chapter 6. But in actual fact, the point is, this was not hyper-individualism. This was an entrustment to the spiritual leadership with what they gave. And the apostles, as the spiritual leaders ensured distribution. There was bluntly a principle of submission to leadership that went with the generosity. Again, these are principles that are timeless and we need to heed them and think about them. Much grace was upon them all. That's the next phrase. What's a wonderful phrase. This community was bathed in grace. How important is that? They had freely received and they would freely give. Amen? That is what the church is. It's a grace community. It's not a community trying to tie things up and structure them and and regulate them and administrate everything to the last dot. We need to fight that. It's a tendency. It's easy to fall into it. But actually, it was a grace community. They had so freely received from God that their spirit and attitude was free to others. What does that mean, grace? Most of you know, but I want to take a moment or two just to say because some of you here may be visiting, may not even be yet clearly Christians or understand it. The Christian gospel is about grace, big time. That's what it's all about. Grace is God's unmerited favour. In other words, God wants to bless you and save you and forgive you and love you with no strings attached. Not because you're good or because you try and tidy your life up or because you try and do better But out of his love, he has done all you need for him to receive you as his child. He died through his son. Jesus died on the cross for you to bear away your sin, to clean you up, to give you a chance for a fresh start and a new future. The gospel is all about grace. It's about receiving the forgiving love of God, being cleansed and restored, freely receiving the lavish grace of God. And those who are forgiven much, love much. 
if we really understand grace, we show grace to other people. We give material things, but we actually give, I don't know, space. We give, we give love to people. We allow for things. We forgive. We allow people to make mistakes. Because we, we know what God's grace is for us. Grace is on them all. Grace needs to be on us all. I want us to be a grace community. I really do. With this fresh start, you can join it this morning. If you're not a Christian, you can come to know the grace of God this morning. You can come to be forgiven, to be cleansed. We can talk a little more about it. We break bread in a half hour's time or something, but, or, or less, I hope. But, but actually... At the moment, just let that sink in. The gospel is all about grace and God's forgiveness. Now, when you understand that, it is not a legalistic thing to be a giver. You've received so much. But not everybody allows the grace of God to change them. And sadly, the next characters are a warning and they're a very sober warning. Let's look at the scary warning of Ananias and Sapphira, which is in the next Um, 11 verses, the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Now, I'm encouraged by this in a perverse sort of way. The early church was not perfect. You can think it was. They're on the crest of the first wave of the Spirit. I mean, real stuff is happening. They've had the day of Pentecost. Last week we read verse 31 of chapter 4. The whole place was shaken. They were all filled with the Spirit. There are miracles happening. People are getting healed. And the sin in the church. The Bible is so honest. Don't ever let it deceive. Don't let people deceive you and say the Bible's you know spun by various church fathers to do blah 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 blah. The Bible that's just junk. The Bible is honest records of what was going on. It's what the Holy Spirit led Luke to tell us about this first phase. And it doesn't, Old or New Testament, the Bible does not gloss over faults amongst its people. It doesn't here. This was not a perfect community. John Stott puts it like this. It was not all romance and righteousness. I like that phrase. The early church was not, not all romance and righteousness. What is this story of Ananias and Sapphira all about? And what are we meant to learn from it? Well, let's be very clear. We are meant to learn from it. And I'll explain that, I hope, over the next few minutes. Let's be very clear. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not refusing to contribute. Nor was it refusing to give all the money they had made from the sale of this piece of land. In the New Covenant, in the Gospel age, there is no law that you must give any money to God or to the church. Grace is free. The gospel is free. If you like, church is free. The church actually isn't an institution. The church is a family that you are born into. It is not a club you join. I do not pay to be a Groves. I am a Groves. I was born into the Groves. You are born by the Spirit into the church of Jesus Christ. You belong to the church, whatever you do. Now you need to work that out in a local expression. But you don't pay God to be part of the church. Okay? It's very important. It's not how it is. So what was the problem? Their sins, and are much more challenging in a funny way than that, their sins were clearly pride and greed leading to deception. 
and actually could be summed up, and this is startling, as the sin of hypocrisy. Now hear that, because that is a very important challenge. Their major sin was several elements to it, was essentially hypocrisy. They pretended to be something they weren't. They appeared more generous than they were. They tried to impress by acting a level of spirituality that they did not attain to. And in doing so, they lied to the church and they lied to God. Now that is challenging. I tell you, it's challenging because that is what really provoked the judgment. God hates hypocrisy. It's ironic, you know, because people often blame the church. The church is full of hypocrites. I want to tell you that the being who hates hypocrisy most is the creator God. Just think of Jesus Christ. Who does he really go for? He goes for religious hypocrites. He doesn't go for the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He goes for the hypocrites. That's when you see Jesus at his most angry and scathing. Listen, it is a biblical fact that honesty, even when it seems to blaspheme, never gets God angry like hypocrisy does. That is a fact. And you can look at people like Job, some of the Psalms, some of the prophets, Habakkuk, whatever. When they get so honest with God that they almost edge on blasphemy. What are you doing? Do you have any power left? Do you know what you're doing? When they talk to God like that, he doesn't get in their faces angry. He might be very firm with them sometimes. But he doesn't get angry and judgmental like he does with hypocrisy. It is very challenging. I find it challenging. What does God get most angry about? Pretending to be better than you are in his name. Actually acting out something on his behalf and saying, I am very spiritual, I've done this, when he knows, because he does know, that you're way back here. And not admitting to it. Not being honest with him, with others. There are some big warnings here. They're like big warning posts. Here's the first one. Warning. God is not mocked. This is what we're meant to learn. God says, this is, as it were, God says, don't behave as though I don't know or don't care about unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, every one of us, hear this. God says at the beginning of the church life, don't behave as if I don't know and I don't care about unrighteousness. I do know and I do care. Big challenge. It's not saying we can't be sinful. You know, we're, we need to be honest and open with God. Walk in the light. God says, don't behave as though I don't know. It's an insult to me. And I would say things like this. God says, I don't treat you lightly. Don't you treat me lightly. God does not treat us lightly. He cares for us. Jesus sweat blood. He died in agony on the cross. His his bones weren't broken. His side was pierced. He, He was pierced for us. God says, I treat you very, very seriously. Do not treat me lightly. God says that to his people in this incident. I I love you and I care for you and it costs me a lot to have you. Don't treat me like a flippant thing that doesn't matter. Be serious with me. God hates deception in his church. You see, his church is built on truth. God says, I am truth. 
I, I want you to walk in the light. Then you have fellowship with me and fellowship with one another. So God is saying something very serious, and it's actually quite near the bone. I'm, I'm, I know it's serious, but let me just say to you, if God's like this, why don't we have ambulances called to every church every Sunday morning? Why doesn't the ambulance service say, oh, no, not Sunday morning again, like they go, oh, no, not Friday night. Friday night, we're out all night picking up drunks, fighting. Sunday morning, it's taking the bodies out of the churches. <laughs> Why doesn't that happen then? Why is Ananias and Sapphira and, and not millions of others? <laughs> well, I think there are answers. Sometimes people say, well, it's the church was red hot in these days with the Spirit. And, and I think there's an element of that, actually. And that the presence of God was so powerful that this sort of thing was happening. I honestly think there's a bit to that. But I think there is something else about God. You can trace his style through history, Bible history. And what he does is at the beginnings of new phases, he puts a big warning sign up. This is not going to be allowed. Stuff will happen if you do this. He does it several times. At the beginning of the tabernacle phase, when the tabernacle's just been built and just starting... Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, go in, it seems drunk, to offer incense, possibly not fulfilling all the righteous laws they've been given, and they are killed. And Aaron has to not grieve, he has to stand there, and Moses says, don't you dare grieve, this is judgment. And you're to carry the bodies out and bury them, and then your other sons are to go. And God, it's like, you don't mess with me. You don't come drunk and casual into my presence. You can read it in context, Leviticus 10, something like that. When they first go into the promised land, there's Achan. Achan, he, he, he lies, he takes stuff for himself, and he, he keeps it to himself, and God exposes it, and Achan is judged. Actually, later, David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. And in bringing the ark back, it's a wonderful thing to do, but actually Uzzah puts his hand on the ark. They've got it on a cart. They should never have had it on a cart anyway. They should have been carrying it on the priest's shoulders. They've got it on a cart, and Uzzah touches it, and he dies. Now, God seems to do that at the beginning of phases. It's like he says, I want you to notice something. This will not be tolerated. Now, actually, you can think that, well, does God go soft then? Has he gone soft in the church age? Did he go soft after Adab and Abihu? Did he go soft after Uzzah or after Achan? If we just took the Achan one for a moment, no, he didn't. But Achan incidences don't seem to keep on, 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 on happening. But actually, the principles keep working out in God's people. That when they belittle him, when they keep things to themselves, he comes in judgment and stuff dries up and goes wrong. And God says, you know what it's all about. I told you at the beginning, it's about your heart. It's about being honest with me. When you foul that up, I get angry. Now, he doesn't square up every week. I think someone said that. He doesn't, you know, okay, we're sort, this, when Ananias and Sapphira, it was very sudden. But actually, God's making, he's putting a big sign. When you put a warning sign, it means something. It doesn't mean everybody's going to fall off the cliff, but it means we need to take notice of it. Because there's a warning here. I don't have this in my church. It's truth. It's light. And when that happens, I get angry, I judge, and I withdraw my favor. Withdraw my favor from those people. It's not about salvation. I, these could have been Christians. I, there's quite a lot of debate about that in commentaries, but I think they probably were believers. God can take people to glory like that if he wants to. 
It doesn't mean everybody who drops dead is being judged. Please don't misunderstand me. It doesn't, it, it, these are principles about life. And God does it at the beginning of phases of his people's um, life. We need to notice it. And for the rest of that phase, you need to learn from it. Here's another one. Here's another warning. Satan can influence Christians. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? I just knew this was going to happen. I'm going to go with what God's on my heart uh, because I know we need to hear this and need to respond properly in the bread and wine a moment. So just be with me, aware of it. Just feel God's put things in my heart. Satan can influence Christians. Now, deception, by its very nature, is hard to spot. Otherwise, it wouldn't be very good deception. And if Ananias had known that Satan was involved in this thought about this con trick, do you think he would have gone for it? If he'd seen a great big foul being like one of these demons programs on television come up and say, I suggest to you that you lie to the church. Do you think he would have done it? Unlikely, I think. Got you awake, isn't it? Unlikely. I don't think so. It's deception. He probably thought it was his own idea. You could say, ah, how do you know? Is it the devil? Is it me? Is it what I watched on television? Is it somebody's suggestion? It doesn't matter where it came from. Do the right thing. That's the answer, isn't it? You see, it actually had a demonic element to it. So what is the defense? If it's so subtle, if it's so clever, and it is clever... What is the defense? How do you know? You don't know. You don't know if that's your idea or the devil's spinning it in, like he did with others in the Bible. Judas and others, even Peter when he, at one time, when he told the Lord not to go to Jerusalem. You don't always know, but there's a, a, a sure-fire answer. Satan can only get in on sin when we give him a landing place. We do not always know where thoughts and ideas come from. Do they come from our flesh? Do they come from the devil? Do they come from other people? The answer is not to analyze their source. It is to do what is right in the sight of God. So Ananias didn't need to know. He did not need to know that the idea came from Satan. All he needed to say to his own self and his wife was, I'm not going to lie to the church. I'm not going to pretend to give more to God than I have. Now, it doesn't matter where it came from. That's what he needed to say. The sin, though, opened them up to Satan using them. I believe the devil did want to use them to sow confusion and deception into the church at this time. This was an internal attack after the externals of persecution. But they could have been safe by determining to be honest, by determining to not seek the praise of men, which I think was one of their motives by determining to give what they agreed to give happily and openly and not mess about with it. That doesn't matter where the source of the problem was, that would have dealt with it. Amen? Same with you and I. But here's a sobering challenge. When we move in sin, when we move in envy or lying or deceit or pride or other sins as well, you can open yourself up to demonic influence and that may take you further than you want to go. You may think, this is a cunning idea. This is a wheeze I've got. But be careful. Is it righteous? Does it honour God? Is it walking in the light? Is it in faith? If it isn't, be careful. Maybe you will end up where you don't want to be. We can resist the devil. 
We overcome him by the blood of the cross through Jesus. We overcome him by our faith and obedience to the Lord and by our desire to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We don't have to be perfect to resist the devil. When we sin, we repent. We're open. We confess our sin. We clear it up. That won't give him any room for manoeuvre. He moves in the dark. We stay in the light with God and we're okay. We are on the victory side. But we can compromise that. Ananias and Sapphira did. Next warning. The Holy Spirit will expose sin. This sin was exposed through the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter does not seem to have known about it naturally, as far as I can work out. And he does not pronounce judgment. What we observe happening in verse 3 and 4 appears to be moving in the word of knowledge and discernment of spirits. I think Peter moves in spiritual gifts. It's like Jesus at the well telling the woman, go and get your husband. You've got five husbands. Peter just has supernatural knowledge of a situation and he just opens it up with the word of knowledge. It's not spooky. It's a scary in a way, but it's not like... It's like he just, he, as he looks at them, he knows they're lying. And he just tells me, lie. What, why, why did you allow Satan to tempt you to lie? Sorry, David, um, you, you can live with this guy, you can handle this. Why did, why did Satan allow, why did you allow Satan to tell you to lie? You, this isn't the money you've got at all. You're telling us it is and it isn't. That's just knowledge. That's a word of knowledge. Now, God will do that in a church. That's maybe where they were a bit more red hot. I look for that, not because it's uncomfortable, but I believe the gifts of the Spirit should be operating at that level where stuff is brought to the surface. Now, actually, what you do with that is you don't end up judging people. You let God deal with it. That's actually what happens here. Ananias falls dead, and that was probably a shock to Peter as well as everybody else. Peter doesn't kill Ananias. We're in the new covenant. Hey, this gets me. We're in the new covenant. We do not go around executing people in the new covenant. We don't execute people for adultery, for heresy for blasphemy for witchcraft for any sin and the church has done that historically it is not christianity it's not jesus i don't care if they were reformers or not they were totally out of order to imprison and execute people they were as much worldly children of their day as we are when we compromise there is no new testament principle for executing people or for punishing them physically like this for sin it's absolute nonsense to suggest it is. This was a work of God. Peter just worked, moved in the spirit. He just knew they were lying to him. Then I believe he discerned what God did. Ananias fell dead and he discerned this is a work of God. And what happens next is three hours later, and that's not impossible in a culture without mobile phones and everything else. It's not weird. A, a few hours later, his wife comes in unknowing of all that's gone on and Peter sort of gives her a chance to repent really if you look at it and to be honest he asks her very straightforwardly is this the price you and Ananias got for the land she says yes and then he says well you're lying and judging as well and and he and he has a sense God's going to do the same thing this is going to be judgment on the whole house it's powerful and it's challenging and it tells us that God wants to expose sin where he comes across it and he will do And we need to be careful because God knows what's going on. It's better to keep open and repentant. I want to go on very quickly. The sin was subtle. I'll be quick. The sin was subtle. I find this very helpful to to, to sort of just think about it for a moment. Another warning. Because you can think, how on earth did Ananias and Sapphira get into this? Well, I'll be quick and I don't think I'm guessing this. I'm relying on scripture here. 
What we have here in verses 1 and 2 follows immediately on from chapter 4, 36 and 37. There was no chapter break in the original writing. The two are clearly linked together. So it doesn't take us a lot of imagination to realize that Ananias and Sapphira were somehow affected by what happened to Barnabas. They were impressed by what happened to Barnabas. They were probably quite covetous of the respect Barnabas had. You know, you can covet people's prestige, you can covet their leadership, you can covet their respect, you can covet all sorts of things. You don't just covet money. They seem to perhaps be envious of Barnabas, son of encouragement, this guileless, generous gift that obviously really won the hearts of the apostles. And somehow they wanted to get in on the act. I I submit to you that they were not driven by care for the poor. They were driven by what was happening in the church and a desire to look as good as everybody else or maybe to get a slice of the attention that Barnabas got. But there's another interesting fact you don't notice in the English. It says they agreed to keep back, kept back, verse 2. And the Greek word translated there is a word which could be translated misappropriate and comes only one other time in the New Testament in Titus 2 and verse 10, I think it is, when it's translated as steal and it refers to a servant taking from their master. And the implication from this pretty clearly in the original language is that they had agreed something which they were pulling out of. So I think, imagine the nation would tell me it was something like this. They stepped up and said, we also got a plot of land. When we sell it, we'll give you the money. They sold the land and, oh, blow, we've got £100,000 for that. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We say we've got 50000 right? And they come back, here are £50,000 for the land. The implication is they had already committed to something that they reneged on. That's the implication in the Greek, that they, they misappropriated or they embezzled. Now, as Peter says, it was theirs to give, but they must have perhaps publicly or in some way promised to give something they didn't do. So their sin is quite complex at one level. It's that they were obviously envious and provoked by what happened to Barnabas, then wanted to look as good, but also didn't want the inconvenience and cost of what that meant for them. So they are hypocritical. And that really led them into deceit and lying. Very serious and very challenging. The sobering fact is that we wouldn't call those crimes the most heinous, would we? We get het up about sexual sin and stuff like that. I'm not saying that's good, but God clearly sees this as very serious. And it's almost a bit nearer to home than some of the other things. I just feel we have to be careful. We have to be sincere with God to avoid anything like this. And the final tragedy, just to say is that they didn't need to do any of it. They didn't need to impress God. He knew the truth. He always does know. They didn't need to try and impress people. They were recipients of God's grace as much as anyone else. They would not have been any less loved, any less accepted, if they'd just given nothing or a bit of small change. That's all they felt they could give. That's all they felt happy to give. We'll say, like, actually, I think we'll get £100,000 for it. We're happy to give a tenth of it. You know, I mean, they could have, if they'd been on, they, they, they didn't have to do anything to earn the favour of God, or I would submit to you the particular favour of the church. They may have been after something a bit more, like the leadership potential of Barnabas. We don't know. We don't know their hearts. But, but actually, they didn't have to do any of this because... God doesn't require us to give in this way. The last thing I want to put up is a scripture. 
2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. Just to remind you as we close. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Generosity is always encouraged in the New Testament. It's not required. It's not a law. It's a demonstration of the grace of God when you're generous. You understand his goodness to you. God genuinely entrusts our material possessions to us. As we've seen in verse 4 of chapter 5, it belonged to you before it was sold. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? That's scripture. So although technically we can say, yes, we are stewards because this all belongs to God, God treats it like it's ours. I'm letting you, it belongs to you. You can dispose of it how you want to. And it's because of that real freedom that we make quality choices in the area of money. These are quality choices. God knows they reflect our heart. They reflect our real spirit. We don't have to do it. It's got to be what you decide in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. He's all about heart attitude, the whole of it. Barnabas was an expression of his heart. It wasn't about money. It was about he was a good man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. The early church were one in heart and mind. They, they had grace on them. They were, they were encouraging each other and sharing with each other. And into that, some, some of them just got all tied up with fleshly, sinful ambition or something and began to move in this area of deception and trying to impress people and frighten of what people think and hoping they think they're better than they are. And that led to trouble. We don't need to do that. We really don't. Don't need to pretend you're better than you are. God loves you, and we love you. I'd much rather know the deep. Let's know the truth if I have to know it. Let's pray from where the truth is. If you're struggling with a sin, let's sort it out. 